What's up, good people? Welcome back to the Holy Shit Pod. Today's episode is a little, I think weighty is the right word. And it's also honest and necessary. A black human was lynched yesterday. The day before. Last week. Last month. Last year. So this episode is in honor of the lives of Dante Wright, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Felicia Harris, Jada Peterson, and all of the black women, black men, our black trans siblings and black children around the world who continue to be criminalized and killed by a state and world determined to fear and demonize blackness. Black folks, fam, let this erase your trigger warning. If you need to tap out at any point, no love lost. Rest your mind, rest your ears, rest your body. This one is for Dante. So we're going to talk about what happened to Dante Wright, the origins of the police force, the evolution of the police state, anti-blackness, and what it means to defund the police. Let's get into it. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, whatever time you are listening to this podcast. Hello, this is the day. It's a day. And there are no church announcements because we've gathered together to reflect on, remember, celebrate the life of Dante Wright, a young black man who was 20 years old who was shot by a police officer in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota about 10 miles from the very place that Derek Chauvin is on trial for his actions one year ago where he killed George Floyd. I've been working to try to avoid the news like nobody's business, but TikTok pulled me into a vortex this morning. That's really made me start to learn more about Dante And what happened to him? Sam, you've been following this a little bit longer than I have. What's happening with Dante Wright? I don't know if it's true that I've been following it more than you have. Um, I know what I have been following has had a certain impact on me in the last 48 hours. I think um, Dante called his mom when he got stopped by the police. He called his mom because... It was her car that he was driving, and he wanted to have the insurance information. Certainly not somebody who's not about to comply, right? Right. Uh, Who's not about to not comply. So he calls his mom, and she can overhear an officer telling him to hang up the phone, hang up the phone. The call is disconnected. She tries to call back multiple times to no avail. Finally, she calls back, and the girl that is with Dante answers the phone, screaming and crying, saying they they shot him. She then turns the camera, because it's a FaceTime call. Oh, God. She then turns the camera to show his mother, her son, laying motionless in the driver's seat. So I thought about... I thought about 2011... Um, I was in college, in undergrad, and this Category 5 tornado had touched down literally in the neighborhood where I was living. 
we didn't know that it had formed. And I was pulling into my apartment complex, got out of my vehicle, and other people in the neighborhood started running, and they were pointing at this funnel cloud just behind our complex. And I, I mean, honestly, I'm black, so I couldn't see, I really couldn't see a funnel cloud, but people was running. So I ran, I got in my house. I went into a downstairs bathroom with no windows and I crouched down on the floor and I said, God, if I'm about to die, I want to talk to my mama. And I call, I tried to call my mom, but because the storm had already disrupted lines and service, I couldn't reach her. And I tried to text and the text wouldn't go through. But I wanted my last words to be to my mother if I wasn't going to survive. You know, we've heard a lot. It was an air freshener hanging in the window. It was an expired tag. He had a misdemeanor warrant. No matter what it was, this 21-year-old should not be dead. No matter what it was. And I just don't, I, I, I don't have many words. I think I wanted to know the most about Dante. And I think I've quickly became triggered, more triggered, because it typically isn't until weeks later that we start to get information about the person's life who died. Mm -hmm. Because that's not the story that news agencies are interested in telling. The most interesting story is outlining in detail exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. And typically, at least in my experience, the only time that we actually get to talking about a person's life and their character and who they were is when whiteness, white people, the police force, the community, a legal team starts to try to assassinate the person's character. Like we found out all about George Floyd's medical history and what drugs he was taking, prescription or otherwise. In the, in the trial of the man that killed him. They're putting him on trial in the trial of someone who killed them. He's not even on trial. Because Derek Chauvin put his knee. On this man's neck. On George Floyd's neck for eight minutes, nearly nine minutes. That's when we find out about George Floyd's medical history. And so I think because the majority of the stories that I could find were about the incident, I had to stop reading again and again. Yeah. It's crazy because I was sitting here and I'm like, I was about to say because of one of my sort of mental health concerns and needs, which is ADHD, for which I'm medicated. My brain followed a thought, but like the thought that comes to mind is like, is it even safe for me to disclose my mental health history? Right. Like if and when, hopefully not when, but if I get into a situation where a police officer kills me, they'll find the information that they want. But is that going to be used to try to say that there's something about my... ADHD meds that made me have a heart attack. Right. This is the type of 
psychological trauma that black people got to live with every day. Like, I don't know many white people who have to have that thought. I don't know many white people who open up a bottle of pills from CVS or Walgreens. Think about how that pill bottle could be used to justify their death. And so I think for me, like, even though it, like, this is just a new way that I feel like I have to calculate and account for my blackness because of my ADHD, I started following the thread that the officer who shot and killed Dante yells taser when she pulls out her gun. And I was like, hold up, man. That don't sound right. Like, I've held a taser before, and I've held a gun. That That's com- two completely different weights. Like, <laughs> and I said, maybe they got some special shit. Like, maybe they shit is weighted, like it's an extra heavy-duty type of taser. Maybe they shit's the same weight. And so I said, let me Google this shit to figure out what kind of tasers these folks are carrying that feel like they're the same weight as a handgun. No. The Glock handgun, the fully loaded Glock handgun that officers typically carry weighs in excess of 34 ounces. And the Taser, the company that makes the Tasers, said that it weighs around eight ounces. Oh, yeah. So how is it that you are so scared, so nervous, so anxious, while... A young black man's just trying to call his mother that you can't distinguish between eight ounces and over 34 ounces. How is it that you only realize when you see blood and you yell, oh, fuck, I shot him. It took you that long to realize what you were doing? Or are you just lying? I think this is, for black people, a familiar conversation. Like We do this every single time a black person dies. Ain't shit about to change. Whiteness desires to exhaust us. Right? Like, at the end of the day, one of the tools of whiteness is to exhaust you and to make it feel as if there is nothing that you can do. And even in a place of exhaustion, whiteness is going to kill you. Even, like, like to think about what you were saying, Sam, like, to be at the place where you think you're going to die and to call your mother, like, that's the sign of a young man who in some ways is saying, into your hands I commend my spirit. Hmm. He ain't even trying to fight you. He's just trying to call his mama because he knows what's going to happen. And even from that place of resignation and exhaustion, It's not enough. It's not enough for you to be exhausted. It's not enough for you to be resigned. I need your life. I want your life. That's what whiteness is saying. It's always said that for black people here in the the States, we didn't evolve into this current state. When you read things like the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, this is what 
these events are are writing. They're rewriting that same narrative in the 21st century. When he talked about certain type of slave owners, the Methodist pastor, the one who was the most brutal, when he talked about how they would use food and every type of measure, when you look at the way it's been baked into our structures and into our systems, it's the same thing. It's the, it's the same thing. It's much more insidious. It's, it's much less obvious, but it's the same thing. There are so many challenges for me. I, I've been, I talked I, I talked to Brandon uh, and Katie before uh, earlier today about a project that I picked back up recently that I stopped in 2016 that dealt with a lot of these narratives. And I went back to that project and to have to look at from where I stopped in 2016 until today and to realize how many narratives were missing because of how many people have been killed in between that time was exhausting. It was, it was heavy. It was difficult. It was sad. And so when you think about this, you know, I read, like, I don't know why, like in the middle of the Chauvin trial with this just happening, the Kenosha, Wisconsin Police Department decides to announce that the officer who shot Jacob Blake seven times was back on patrol after, you know, their investigation concluded that he used reasonable force. In this particular instance, this lady... I don't even know her name. Kim Potter, I think. That's her. Um, yeah. She's resigned. And recently, I think I read uh, a few hours ago, she's going to be charged with secondary manslaughter. Yep. Cases are a little different. The issue with the officer in the Kenosha shooting is that there has to be consequences. Right? You know, if, if I... If I accidentally made a mistake counting my register when I was a manager at McDonald's, there were consequences. If as a doctor, I'm negligent in the ER and I make a mistake with somebody's life, there's consequences. They take my medical license. There's, there's consequences. I may not be able to be a doctor again, depending on, you know, the severity of, of what happens. Like there's, there are consequences. It seems to be only in law enforcement that you can say, oops, my bad. Or, oh, I, I was afraid for my life, right? But, but these white folks ain't dying at the same rate. The Aurora, Colorado shooter who still had his gun in his hand was placed in cuffs and didn't get killed. The young terrorist in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who shot and killed somebody and then was walking toward the police with his AR-style rifle in his hand was told, get out of here, go home. They didn't mistakenly shoot him. They didn't think he was aggressive or a terrorist. But black folks, there's something evil and frightening about our blackness for not just white folks, it's certainly white folks, but white folks for systems and structure of power that justifies this type of 
response in their eyes. Then they'll say, oh, you just need to comply, right? Hmm. Well, why did he get back in his car? Apparently he got out and got back in. Why did he get back in his car? But then you got an army lieutenant who's literally got his hands out of the window. Not a threat at all. In uniform. In uniform. Uh, that, that just, that's just proof that there's not a uniform that you can put on that can make you be any less black in the eyes of some people. You can have on your hospital scrubs. You can have on your surgeon's jacket. You can have on your military fatigues. And you're still black. You're going to be treated as such. Now you tell me, how is that any different than the folks who were swinging from trees during the civil rights era? I haven't been able to figure out words for this um, because the words that I have are all anger, and that doesn't that doesn't help that um, that doesn't help <laughs> anything. Um, nor does uh, I don't think resignation is the word that I'm looking for, but. Um, like it just keeps happening again and again. And the reality is I can drive without, I can drive with expired tags. I can do anything. Only I might get pulled over in a particular neighborhood for them to tell me that I might should probably get out of that neighborhood. Um, and, and I find myself wanting to do something, not not uh, the great white hope do something uh, because, I mean, we went to, to the protests about George Floyd this summer, but there's something else that has to be done, but I don't know what that is because right now I'm sitting here with you two and the two of you could be driving somewhere and be shot for no reason. And, and I... I um, there is nothing that I can do about that. There is no way you mistake. There is no mistaking a taser and a gun unless you have this abundant fear. That was what, what I was wrestling with today. And it's generations and generations and generations. I, I don't want to give up hope that things can change. Because then, then I just walk away and and um, and rest in my whiteness. But driving up to Minnesota and standing on the you know line between the the protester and the police isn't the right answer either. Yeah, I think I said once before that I didn't think black people were hopeful in terms of like this great experiment of all of us holding hands and singing kumbaya. But I think what you just described, Katie, is uh, something that uh, you said, I want to be hopeful. You don't want to give up hope. But I think I want to speak for all black people. I'm going to borrow from the words of Paulo Freire. He defines in his book, Pedagogy of Hope, Reliving Pedagogy of the Oppressed. He talks about existential weariness. He says, this is not a physical weariness, but a spiritual weariness which leaves those caught in it emptied of courage, emptied of hope, and above all, seized with a fear of adventure and risk. He says, long exposure 
to intensely tragic experiences equates to the disregard for people's lives, which translates in a perversely murderous white supremacy to a people of no value. He says any black life can simply die or disappear and white supremacy will not care one little bit. I mean, I close the book right there on that statement. Like, that's it. It's weariness. What I've been feeling the last two days is weariness. It's existential weariness. And like you say, Brandon, you feel it. You feel it every time this happens. You get to a place where you, you live with it, right? And then it happens again. It's like a ma- it's like an 18-wheeler hits you. Yep. Every single time. Listen, y'all, let's pause for a moment, reset, and jump back in with the second part of our conversation about the movement to defund the police and the function of fear installing this extremely necessary conversation. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Lisa Weaver the host of Theolab Media's new podcast, Healing Jephthah's Daughters, a podcast for all women and all girls who live with the trauma from their relationships with their fathers. On this podcast, we'll use family systems theory, biblical criticism, and storytelling to identify liberative practices that lead to our freedom, healing, and wholeness. Join me each Wednesday for conversations with friends, colleagues, biblical scholars, and mental health practitioners who will accompany us on the journey. Healing Jephthah's Daughters is available on all platforms. Subscribe via your favorite podcast app today. And as always, my prayer for you is freedom, healing, and wholeness. Last summer after George Floyd was murdered, A proclamation came from the streets. Defund the police. Some people were confused because the protest chant turned into a song and turned into a dance. And they said, why are y'all out here dancing? A black man was murdered. Because I can't get weary. (laughs) Like, I do get weary. Like, that's the reality. So I don't want to psych myself out and say that it's not tiring as fuck. Defund the police. Defund the police. We defund the police. And people got mad about that. People wanted to act as if the police have been around since the beginning of time and that there's no way to have a clear, strong social order in the absence of a police force. But the reality is the police hasn't always been around. The earliest moment in time to which most people can trace the police force, and we'll put a link in the show notes, is the early 1600s with night watches. Up north, they desired to protect things that were being shipped into like the Boston Harbor. That was the reason for the night watch. But down south, it was about capturing slaves who tried to run away. I'm not going to go through the whole history here because I'm not going to spend that much time. If you're interested, Judy, you can read about it. I'm committed to not doing anybody's homework for them because that means I'm depleting my own energy. And I've done my homework. I have studied to show myself approved. The most I'm going to do is give you a link in the show notes. So read the history. And read how the police force 
was an extension of the Ku Klux Klan. People want to talk about all police officers aren't bad. All police officers aren't evil. Look at all the black police officers. There actually aren't as many as you think. And as much as people want to talk about Blue Lives Matter, a black body in a blue suit is still black. And that person's not granted the same protection. And that's the thing, right? A black body in a blue suit is still a black body. Yep. And black police ain't out here killing black folks at the same rate that we're seeing this happen with white police officers. I worked in law enforcement. I worked with sheriff's deputies. Black people have much more success de-escalating things with black folks. I've seen black sheriff's deputies go into neighborhoods where tensions are super high and leave shaking hands with folks laughing because they're able to see in them themselves and their sons and their daughters and their children and their parents, something that is very difficult, it seems, for white people to see in black folks. And it's hard. It's hard for you to humanize somebody when you can't see yourself in them or your own children in them or your own family in them. And so maybe that's why white people keep killing black people, because in their eyes, they're not on the same level of humanity. They don't rise to that same level. But they adopted all these black babies, Sam. What you mean? They, like, they don't see them, even though they got a black child that they're raising in their household? I'm not going to say what I want. <laughs> <laughs> say what you need to say. Because I'm bullshitting. Like, I, like I, I don't actually believe that that's real. Like, Because like, I still think when you're adopting black children, you're actually attempting to baptize black children into whiteness. Mm. Like, to adopt a black child into your white family is to think you are participating in the work of redemption. Right. I'm going to take you into my home, and there's, there will be something about my white household that might save you. Not even whiteness can save a black body, a black human, a black soul, right. a black life. Or it's for their own self-gratification. It's, you know, look at this great deed I did. Yeah. We took him in, and we loved him like our own, or her in and loved her like our own. I mean, for those folks who are... Uh, adopting and <laughs> if anyone knows me, I don't like I don't like speaking in absolutes or generalizations a lot. I don't. So there may be one or two white folks out there that's not doing that, or that don't think they're doing that. But it's hard for me to imagine that white murderers can be apprehended without incident, and black people with barely misdemeanors have to die in the street. And if you saw the same humanity in those black folks that you saw in those white folks, that wouldn't be happening. It wouldn't be happening on the scale that it's happening. And some people might say, it's not that I didn't see the humanity. I just had, I, I really genuinely fear for my life. Well, if you're not fearing for your life for these white folks, it speaks to the same point. If black people cause you to be fearful, it just doesn't come out of nowhere, right? White people don't just wake up fearful. This has been indoctrinated in people for 400 years. It is ingrained in our institutions. It is ingrained in our documents, the governmental organizations that have throughout history, like the American Economic Association, who published the words of Dr. Frank Hoffman, who stated that blacks embody an immense amount of immorality and crime and that it was a part of their race traits and tendencies. 
Walter Wilcox, a chief statistician, statistician, a chief statis- statistician, 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 statistician. No. There's an S in there. I said it right. A chief statistician for statistician. the U.S. No, it's not, Brandon. It's not. I'm looking at the word. What is wrong with you? Stop correcting me incorrectly. <laughs> That is like one of the only times I've ever seen you do that. <laughs> what? Statistician. Why so horrible? I say statistician. I don't say, pronounce that second is. <laughs> okay, you're wrong. Statistician. Statistician. <laughs> Walter Wilcox, a chief statistician for the U.S. Census Bureau, with the blessing of the American Social Science Association, published his research that predicted blacks were several times more likely to commit crimes than whites. Like, this isn't just people dreaming it up in their head. Like, this was a national movement that indoctrinated people over time. It's centuries long. It's like, centuries long. That's a lot to come up against. But I think for me, but that goes back to like what Katie was talking about. Like, what do I do? And I think that's part of what I'm trying to get to today. It's like, what do we do? And for me... The mistake that many of us make is we think we got to start over from the beginning every single time. There actually are people out there already doing the work. And if anyone who's having a hard time thinking about what to do is looking for a first step or a most faithful next step, look up what it means to defund the police. Because the reality is, is we are throwing money at police forces and we are sending police officers into situations that they are not equipped to handle. You have to acknowledge that the job is not to protect and to serve. It never has been. Again, look at the link in the show notes and look at how the KKK was deeply tied to the police force. It's always been about policing black people, keeping black people enslaved. Which is why like the amount of black people in jails is astronomically different. So it has been, that's how they've continued, we, white people have continued to keep black folks enslaved. I mean, and, and I'm thinking about what Sam was saying earlier, like a black body in a blue suit doesn't matter. Like mm-hmm. I've seen so many TikTok videos, so many Facebook live streams. Like one in particular that comes to mind is like a white woman sitting in a restaurant unmasked some point last year going off. And the folks in the restaurant called and said, hey, we need the police to come up here and get this woman out of here. And a black police yeah. showed up. Black officer showed a up. A black police officer showed up and she acted like, right, who is this nigga? You ain't here for me. Basically. You ain't here for me. And it wasn't until a white police officer showed up and started engaging the woman that she even started to move her body. He tries to forcibly remove her because she refuses to leave the establishment after she's already been told that it's time to go. And he sits there talking to her, a black man, for several minutes. It was long enough to be several TikTok videos because they only give you 60 seconds. And when he gets to the place of trying to physically remove her, not pulling out a weapon, not even a taser, she tells him that he's doing something wrong. She's going to call the police on the police. Brandon, imagine if black police officers were doing to white people what white police officers are doing to black people. They would start singing what they, they get to us. Defund police. It wouldn't just be defund the police. Those people would be shot at the scene. Abolish the police. They would say abolish. The, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. The police officer doesn't get out alive then. I mean. It's more of the extreme that Katie is talking about. Like it would be, oh man, 
people would be flayed and 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 gutted and uh, they would lynch the police force. They would lynch the police. Police would not yeah. be able to go into cities. They would not be able to patrol neighborhoods. They would not be able to do anything because white folks will say, "No, you're killing our people." Yep. And you're not allowed in here and stay out. Yep. I just want the same amount of money that's been thrown at the pandemic to be thrown at black people. So wait, you t- you said a couple of things and I think you need to talk about it. Talk about the difference between defund the police. And abolish the police. I mean, so people hear defund the police and they think... Because people are calling for the same thing. I want, I want to let it be known that people have called for both. Yeah, I mean, and so I, I think I'm open to whatever's going to make sure that black people are living. But defund the police is saying there's so much money given to police officers and police forces to send them into situations that they are not trained for. They're not prepared to deal with the mental health crisis. And what you need to be sending in is some sort of community advocate who has an LCSW, an LMFT, an LPC, who understands mental health needs and can perform an intervention in that space. And so to defund the police actually means to realign your resources so that the proper individual who's trained to show up for these issues, to to the proper individuals who are trained to show up for a domestic dispute can enter the space and conduct an intervention. So in this model, the police still exist in some form. In some models of defunding the police, yes. There are multiple perspectives. Right, right, right. And this is where Barack Obama and the Black Lives Matter activists got into some tensions on the Twitter, but it was ultimately trying to say, Barack was saying, y'all aren't actually calling for a defunding of the police. And they were saying, yes, we are. And he was saying, no, here's better language that might help you achieve your goal. And I think black folks appropriately said, fuck changing our language. We've been changing our language for years. That doesn't make a difference. If we say defund the police, rebudget the police, it doesn't matter. These people like the police. I mean, and I think about how long it took some black congregations to actually get to the place where they affirmed Black Lives Matter. Not even as a movement, just as a phrase. I sat in churches where people still talked about what it meant to obey the police when they pulled you over. Oh, yeah. Conversations where people was literally like, people need to comply. Like, why are you fighting with the police? Why are you arguing? And then the situation happened in, oh, shit, was that Minnesota? And y'all want Amy Klobuchar to be y'all's president. I never, I never was for Amy. With uh, Philando Castile. Where was Philando Castile? Yep, that's Minneapolis as well. Or St. Paul. So Philando Castile happened where he literally is obeying the police, informs the police that he has a registered license, firearm, and they shoot him. And so the other option is abolish the police. Shut it down. <laughs> Kick them all out. Figure out new jobs for them to perform. And then start from the ground up and figure out what each community needs on a localized basis and create structures of safety, concern, and care that's not all contingent on the police and intervention with firearms. We've talked about it in terms of the church, too. How do you get rid of all the underlying stuff? So to think that we can create a community need of compassion and care and safety assumes that everyone thinks that everyone else in the community is a human. Hmm. I mean, like, as you were talking then— I had never thought of it until right now. But as you were talking, I was like, how do we not then again have lynching crowds? Like, how does that that not then the vigilante justice? Well, but, well, uh, Katie, I think that, well, what I'm hearing you say and what I'm appreciating about what you're saying is, like, one way to hear it is 
to think about all the possibilities that could exist in the absence of a police force. But the reality is they're not happening with the police. They're, they're still happening with the police force in right. place. And so really also the true. conversation about yep. defunding the police and abolishing the police is really a red herring. Because at the end of the day, the question is, how do we create a system and a world that is not predicated upon anti-Black, white supremacist institutions in order to maintain order and or regulate society? And so really, it's not even about the police, y'all. It's about anti-Blackness. Because the reason that I make that I made the link earlier to the KKK is because the KKK was clearly an anti-Black organization. The police grew out of the KKK and that yes. means it's always going to be anti-black. It's always going to be about white supremacist institutions of power. It's always going to be about white authority. There's no way to redeem that. And so you have, I mean, even though I hear you saying it's about anti-blackness, but it, you still have to have this conversation because, right, I don't think any of us believe that you can change these ideas around anti-blackness with the current system still in place. It's impossible. It is, right. it is impossible to right. change. Yeah. You cannot do it. And I want to be clear because I think that this is always the place where somebody who's a well-intentioned white person, and if you're a well-intentioned white person, remember what my grandmama said, good intentions paved the road to hell. Get off the road. Because when I talk about anti-blackness and when I talk about affirming and celebrating black life, connected to that for me is every other person of color on the spectrum. Because I refuse to believe that blackness is an impasse and I refuse to believe that blackness mm -hmm. is at the center of the universe. For me, it is. But I'm not going to make everybody else bow at that altar. If it is the case that when you hear somebody talk about black people and you cringe and say, why don't you talk about all the other colors, all the other races, all the other cultures? That in itself is another act of white supremacy. Because the issue is you can't identify with blackness. You distancing yourself from blackness, understanding black is bad, black is sinful, black is dirty, black is immoral, black is sexually deviant. And as long as you're willing to hold those things in your subconscious, what's the point? It doesn't matter how many signs you hold up. It doesn't matter how many statements your institution writes. It doesn't matter how many Facebook, Instagram, YouTube posts you make. Because all of that is still a project of whiteness so that you can create an outer veneer of pro-blackness while maintaining anti-blackness in the bowels of your soul. So for me, I mean, again, abolish the police and defunding the police are two phrases that we hear and you won't find one person who has the exact same opinion about what those things mean. But I would contend to you that that's still centering the police. Mm -hmm. When the actual conversation we need to be having is about anti-blackness. And if our Asian siblings, if our Latinx siblings, BIPOC siblings could get to the place of hearing that, as not exclusive but invitational. I wept when the six Asian women were murdered in Atlanta because what I still understood is that that's an extension of anti-blackness. And so it doesn't harm me or hurt me to say that anti-Asian violence is real because that's a synonym for anti-blackness. But, and I saw a couple of posts today, I think, that said 
something along the lines is like, did you notice that when we all begin to rally and say, stop Asian hate, nobody was responding, stop all hate. Well, my God. And that's not an indictment on stop Asian hate, because I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to say that, right? I'm gonna continue to shout that because it's so true. But notice, but notice that the response was not stop uh, stop all hate. Why you just gotta single out Asian hate? But it is the case that when black people say black lives matter, all lives matter. Stop killing us. But nobody's saying all violence is bad violence. That didn't come out. Even though I know that not all of my siblings of color can identify with what I'm saying in this particular moment. Like, I've worked to build solidarity with my Asian siblings. And I know Asian siblings who always talk about anti-blackness whenever shit happens. That's my experience. I can't say that it's all Asian people and that's all black people, but that's my experience. Right. Mine too. I just need people to start choosing blackness. Like, that's really what it boils down to. Because all of our systems are created as if blackness is something to be feared. And really, we just trying to live and call our mama when it becomes abundantly clear that all you about to do is shoot us the first chance you get. You ain't got to fear us. Let's hit that pause button one more time and then close this thing out. The last part of our conversation will include a brief discussion about the function of Easter and the resurrection in the Christian imagination in contrast with the everyday realities of Good Friday for black people. And then we'll close it out with a special invitation to courage, truth, and abundant living. We'll be right back in 15 seconds. What's this make Easter feel like to y'all? I'm not sure. It makes me think it's not real. Easter's not real? The resurrection is not real? Whatever these people are claiming ain't real. Because whether or not the resurrection is a factual or a scientific occurrence, it's a story that's supposed to inspire a new way of life regardless of what you believe about the actuality or the factuality of the resurrection, the story is supposed to inspire in you a new life. So if the story's not actually inspiring new life, to me, it's a lie. There's a guy over at Emory University, David Blumenthal. Uh, he, he writes in his book, Facing the Abusing God. He says, in all cases of abuse, there must be a stance of protest and rebellion. So I question what does that mean about God, right? The world in which we live is a larger system of injustice allowed by God. Hmm. So not only are we tasked with protesting these systems and institutions that exist, we must also protest God as the div- divine creator of this world. 
God cannot become an abusive spouse or an abusive parent. And if God does, we must protest. So to protest God, I say, is not to suggest a complete turning away, but a certain degree of distrust and challenge as appropriate religious response. How can black bodies live in faithfulness with God without any protest? Just as I believe we can't live in a society where lives are valued differently because of race with, without any protest, if our theology is truly contemplative, we cannot do it without confronting God. If God is omnipotent, as I believe God is, and God knows the outcomes, then our human task is to protest until such a time that God atones for God's uncaring negligence. Break that down, Sam. God atones for God's uncaring negligence. Break down every single word. Again, that that again, that's that 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 supposes or presupposes that God is omnipotent and God knows the outcomes. And God allows the outcomes. Um And I'm saying that in that model, how is God much different than an abusive spouse or an abusive parent? Well, I mean, God is the parent that you go to and tell that something is happening and they still don't do anything. I'm saying that, right, right. But that's that, but it sounds like it, when you say it in that way, it's like you're outside playing and the parent is in the house cooking and don't know what's happening. We believe in an omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient God. I think most of, I, many of us do. I shouldn't say all of us do. Now, if the parent is sitting on the front porch watching the abuse and still allowing the abuse, I think it is also the task of humanity to not just protest these systems, but to protest, to question, to challenge. There's a certain level of distrust and challenge to challenge. And I think we see this. I think there's evidence of this in scripture. I think we have seen people say, why, God, are you allowing this? You're supposed to be just. And there's evidence in scripture. Job, the Psalms. I don't know how I feel about scripture these days, but there's evidence in scripture that this happened and that God responded. I've heard the cries of my people. Come, let us go down. I will send my faithful servant Moses to deliver them. So what what does it mean or what does it look like to protest God? I know what it looks like for me. I mean, I think for me, I don't let go of my questions. Hmm. And I don't settle for easy answers. I pulled a Sam. I went back and looked at some of my, it's not a seminary paper. (laughs) But I remember when I was wrestling with this in 2019, I wrote a sermon for Good Friday that year. A seven last words sermon. You going to preach? You going to preach? I'm going to preach for a second. Yeah. I'm ready. I just want to read this out loud right quick. And for our invitation today, I want us to each close with an honest prayer. Okay. Hmm. So this is the word of pod for the people of pod. Let anyone who has ears to hear pay attention. Today's text comes from the gospel of Luke. 
with Jesus here hanging on the cross, suffering, bleeding, gasping for air, dying. And where are his people, his disciples, the ones who were supposed to go with him to the end? They are not here. But you know who is here. Two criminals make it all the way to the end with Jesus. Criminals, bad people, wrongdoers. But who were they? And what did they do to merit such a callous death? What did they do to deserve such brutality? The writer of the Gospel of Luke refused to reveal, refused to reveal the nature of their crime. And because we're good Christian people and we've been in church all of our lives, some of us anyway, we've read the other two gospels. We know that Matthew and Mark tell us they're thieves. That's what's gotten them here on the cross. But Luke refuses to give us that much. Even still, in the absence of an explicitly named crime, our 21st century imaginations fill in the gaps subconsciously with or without an explicitly stated crime. Our diseased imaginations justify what we read in the text. It's because the violence that we read therein rhymes with the violence we witness within the American judicial system. Departments of correction, police states, electrocutions, lethal injections, assassinations, conservative political violence, liberal political violence, all joining the chorus, shouting, crucify him away with this man. Bring us Barabbas. Give her the chair. She deserves to die. We had to kill him. He was a dictator. They're rapists. They're drug dealers. They're criminals. They're racists. They're deplorables. They're sexist. They're idiots. They're cowards. There's a rhythm of violence in the text. Everybody's caught up in it, mocking, ridiculing, hating, being callous, being angry. And every year, Christian people get caught up in the rhythm. Every Holy Week, every Easter, we join the chorus of their violent song. Sometimes the rhythm doesn't seem like anything different from any other day because on the American liturgical calendar, there's only Good Friday. America only knows criminalization. It only knows othering. It only knows brutality. It only knows violence every day, every hour, every minute, every second. We play the violent song on repeat. Just when we get tired and it sounds like the song is about to end and we're preparing to exit the dance floor, the beat drops again and we all start dancing like it's the first time the violent song has played. Then somebody starts passing around the blood of Jesus in a chalice and it makes us feel so good. And with every sip, the bass line intensifies, the groove deepens and we just can't stop dancing. Of course, these three criminals, these three others on the cross deserve to die. The violence of the cross mirrors our violence. The violence of the cross sanctions our violence. It sacralizes our violence. It makes it a holy necessity. It teaches us that the only way to get resurrection is through violence. The only way to get to hope is through violence. The only way to get to life is 
violence. The only way we get to liberation is violence. The only way we get to justice is violence. The only way we get to being holy is by killing black people because white is right and we need the police to kill people because without death, without violence, there's no resurrection. And then we convince ourselves that we're doing something for the sake of justice. And we'll do whatever it takes to achieve that justice. Conservative justice, liberal justice, moderate justice. We'll do whatever it takes to achieve it, even if it means we have to kill you. They killed Jesus. Why shouldn't we kill you? Because the only way we can ever achieve justice or resurrection is by somebody dying. So we create people in the image of our own fear because then we can make them enemies. If there is an enemy, there can be a fight. And if there is a fight, we fulfilled our Christian responsibility to perpetuate violence for the sake of justice. Resurrection, if we're not careful, we'll allow the liturgical calendar to make violence ordinary. And if you move too quickly, you'll miss a beautiful dialogue, a human connection that for a very brief moment interrupts our violent dance. Aren't you the Christ? Can you save us? I assure you today, that you will be with me in paradise. It's a human moment, and it's an invitation. No, 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 no. It's not you hanging there on the cross. That's always where we like to be. More often than not, we're the ones on the ground shouting, othering, criminalizing, and demonizing, just being downright violent. But of these three humans hanging on the cross don't invite us to be crucified. They don't invite us to carry our crosses. They invite us to put it all down and to live. This is the word of Pod. For the people of Pod. Thanks, Thanks be to Pod. Thank you. Be to the Pod. Why are you like the this? The Pod in heaven. Why oh, are you the like pod this? Over your life. Sir. Thank you. Sir. Thank you, Pod. <laughs> As we come to the end of our time together today, I invite you to pray. Let's pray honestly. Let's pray openly. Our sister Shanika Walker-Barnes has been caught up in some internet controversy lately over the first line of a prayer she wrote. What what was the first line? God help me to hate white people. Oh, my. Yeah, but it made a turn in the end. It made a turn to hope just like Psalms do. Shanika Walker-Barnes, we see you, sis. And we're going to pray with you. Katie, Sam, what's your honest prayer? Day after day after day. We speak the names and light the candles of all these people who have died. Not not these people, God. We're talking about black people and brown people. We're talking about Asian folks. We're talking about transgender folks. All 
of these people who are dying. It's not okay. And we say it, and we say it, and we say it. And there's still people, oh God, who who still want to shoot all the black and brown people and let the white domestic terrors get away with it, oh God. And I am returning to my apocalyptic place, oh God. I need you to bring it to an end. It is not okay for you to weep on the gallows. It is not okay for you to weep on the streets of Minneapolis, oh God. I need you to make it stop. I need you to make my people stop shooting black people. And I, I don't believe enough, oh God, that, that only you do it. I, I know that we are involved in making the shifts and the change. So I pray that, that you show me the way, that you show my white siblings the way. But I fear we are gone. We have reached the point where we can no longer see that the power of sin and death has been taken away. I need you to come back. Yo, God. It's me. I'm tired. Bro, I'm so tired. I'm starting to wonder if you're if you're the God who hears and answers and acts, or are you the God who has ears but cannot hear? The God who has eyes but cannot see. Because the same thing keeps happening. And I think I resolved within myself not to ask you to change it because if you really had a desire to change it, it would be changed by now. I think what I'm learning is that this suffering is given to humanity and it is humanity's responsibility to make it cease. So I just want you to know that I'm tired. I am weary. But I'm not defeated. And I'm certainly not done. And won't be. As long as I have breath, I'm going to do my part to try and make it cease, to try to make this suffering, this pain, this madness stop. Enslaved God. At the bottom of a slave ship. In the back of the slave house. 
at the furthest point on the field. I wish I could believe that it was actually you I was introduced to. As opposed to white people's distortion of you. Enslaved God who's never set foot inside of anybody's church. I wish you could teach me a song to sing. Because this shit we've been singing ain't working. Enslaved God. Tell me there's a heaven where white people ain't there because if they there, they just gonna fuck it up. I ain't really asking you for shit. Because any God, enslaved or not, who allows this shit to keep going on, That ain't for me. Enslaved God. If you really are in chains, why don't you break free?